Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. How many fish am I seeing here? Approximately 9,000. Per tank. Correct. If you want to know what 9,000 fish looks like, imagine a backyard swimming pool. One of the smaller, above-ground ones. Picture it filled all the way up to the top, but instead of with water, all you can see is fat, swaying fishtails and fan-shaped fins. All you can see is a mass of fish, packed in so tight that you could almost just walk across their backs. At Sand Plains Aquaculture, at this high-tech fish farm I'm touring in rural southwestern Ontario, there are almost a hundred pools like that. It's like a giant warehouse, but rammed with fish. The air here is hot and humid. It's like stepping into the tropics. The type of fish this farm grows might just be the future of seafood. We bring them in every 21 days, every three weeks. We bring in a a new group of fish and cycle them through. That's Roger Bushy. He's the farm's manager. This facility, all those fish-filled pools, exists to feed an appetite that until a few years ago, North Americans didn't even know they had. It isn't trout. It isn't salmon. And nope, this isn't a halibut farm. The fish they grow at Sand Plains is way more workaday, way more ordinary than any of those. Sand Plains' specialty is tilapia. They grow very quickly. We can get them up to market size in less than a year. That's one of the key benefits to tilapia. They grow fast. It takes only 10 months for the tilapia here to grow from the size of a speck to more than a pound and a half each to market size. So what you're looking at here is is the pump. It will move the the fish and water without harming the fish at all. Today's a harvest day. We're up on a gangplank above the tanks. That pump sucks the contents of an entire tank, water, fish, everything, up to a grading table. Pushes them up here to our dewatering box, separates the water from the fish, and drops them onto our grading belts. Again, without causing any scale loss, damage to their fins, or bruising, because they just can't go to market like that. It's all about the outward appearance. The outward appearance is the first thing the customer is going to see. They aren't going to buy a fish that doesn't look nice in the store. Within a couple seconds, a gusher of water starts pouring out of a pipe. And then a fish flops out. And another fish. And soon, there's a torrent of tilapia. We can move upwards of 10 tons of fish in, uh, in an hour. The numbers here, the sheer quantity of tilapia Sand Plains produces is staggering. But even 10 tons per hour is just a drop in North America's tilapia bucket. This is just one farm, just one pipe full of fish on one harvest day. When, bigger picture, North America is practically bursting with the stuff. 
And the story of why that is, of how tilapia's mild-tasting, rock-bottom-priced, white-fleshed fillets became the seafood equivalent to the boneless, skinless chicken breast, reaches out way beyond this single farm. From CBC, this is The Fridge Light, the hidden stories behind the food you eat. I'm Chris Nottle-Smith. If you eat fish, you've eaten tilapia. You've eaten tilapia maybe without even realizing it. It's one of North America's most consumed seafoods. Tilapia has become so common in the last couple decades, so indispensable to the continent's food retail and restaurant economies, that a lot of people don't even bother to call it tilapia anymore. We just call it fish. Which is pretty incredible when you consider that even at the end of the 1990s, most North Americans had never even tasted the stuff. The rise of tilapia into one of North America's go-to seafoods extends from Africa and China to Newfoundland's Grand Banks and across the dining tables of fast, casual restaurant chains like Applebee's. But mostly, the reason tilapia has caught on so fully, so fast, is because of its enormous promise. In this episode, Catch of the Day, how tilapia, one of the strangest and frankly blandest tasting animals you'll ever encounter, might just be exactly the fish the planet needs. Well, tilapia is from Africa. It's, it's from the Nile. In ancient Egypt, they were kept in captivity. We can actually see drawings on the walls of some of the tombs that depict tilapia in these small ponds, you know, in gardens that the pharaohs had. It's the most common fish. Their shape is sort of like a typical sort of perch-like fish. Um, it looks like a sunfish or bluegill or brim. Their bodies slightly flattened from the side. An appearance of a football. They're fairly round. They're really hardy. Very distended belly. They have these beautiful fins. On their sides. It's got the dorsal fin, and the pectoral fins. and Much longer fins than you would see on a salmon. And then tapers out rather dramatically at the tail. It's sort of nice variegation of dark and lighter colors. So they can filter feed, and they do it very efficiently. And it goes through the water, sucking the algae. Traps little particles in the water as they swim through the water. Little sieves in its gills. But when they're small, they're bait. When they're large, they are omnivorous. So they literally will eat anything from uh, duckweed to small crustaceans, uh, fish, you name it. The male builds the home, the nest, and the female comes, drops the eggs, and the male will go fertilize the eggs, and then the female will pick up the eggs in her mouth and incubate, brood the eggs in her mouth. So she'll have 500,000 eggs in her mouth, and two or three days they'll hatch, and they'll swim around. It's really cool to see. It's like a big cloud. can swim out of a river into the ocean, swim down the coast, and go up into another river and unleash its babies. So it's very prolific, 
uh, very versatile, can go in brackish or fresh water. So tilapia come from Africa, and yeah, they raise their babies in their mouths. Check it out on YouTube. Just search tilapia and mouth brooding. One other thing about tilapia, the people who know them think of tilapia as almost a miracle fish. First of all, my zodiac sign is Pisces, so I'm a little biased, and I've you know <laughs> been studying and, and watching fish from a pretty young age. This is Anne Kapuscinski. I'm a professor of sustainability science in the environmental studies program at Dartmouth. Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. She's also served as a science advisor to the UN, the World Health Organization, and the European Union in sustainability circles. Anne is a very big deal. And Anne's job, her calling in life, is to make fish farming as environmentally sustainable as possible. So it only makes sense that she's quite possibly tilapia's biggest fan. They're the world's second most farmed fish by volume. So they're really important in the food system of the world and especially in aquaculture. Globally, they're the second most farmed fish by volume after carp. Inherently, they've got the potential to be a really sustainable form of uh, aquaculture because they feed really low in the food chain. By low on the food chain, what Anne means is tilapia are vegetarians. They can happily swim along through life eating only plants. In nature, they graze on algae. They can actually filter feed some algae and small little microscopic animals called zooplankton. They eat sometimes a little bit of uh, invertebrates. Hmm. You know, whereas the, we farm a lot of salmon in the world right now, salmon and trout. And in nature, those species actually feed on other fish. This distinction, what farmed fish eat, it really matters. It's absolutely fundamental. Salmon, trout, halibut, European sea bass, most other commonly farmed fish species have to eat other fish in the form of fish meal or fish oil. And there are two significant problems with that. First off, from a purely economic standpoint, fish meal and fish oil, they're expensive. Their prices are volatile. So, at least in theory, it's more expensive to farm fish that need to eat other fish. But more important than all that, it matters for the sake of sustainability. Because where do you think fish meal and fish oil come from? They come from wild fish. Fish meal and fish oil are, they're right now large global commodities that are extracted from fish that are caught in the ocean. And they're from species that are already edible to humans, things such as sardines, mackerel, Atlantic herring. A lot of fish meal even includes anchovies. Anchovies. So think about this. Entire fleets around the world's oceans scoop up these vast quantities of wild fish so they can be fed to farmed fish, which, by the way, we're told we're farming because there aren't enough wild fish left. Hakuna matata, I guess. Terrestrial agriculture, humans have never farmed animals that feed on other animals. It would be like farming wolves or farming tigers. It's beyond absurd. 
Tilapia's other great advantage is how readily they grow. Tilapia are freakishly efficient at converting food into flesh. The standard most biologists and farmers use for measuring this is called feed or food conversion ratio. What food conversion refers to is the amount of food you have to feed to an animal for every, let's say, gram or kilogram of weight gain. So the lower your food conversion ratio is inherently the more sustainable your production. So if you take beef, one of the least efficient animal proteins going, you need to feed it somewhere between 4 and 8 kilograms of cattle feed for every kilogram of cow you get back. And so you might ask, why are we feeding this cow all this food so we can get way less food in return? Pork's quite a bit better than beef. And when you look at chickens, they're even more efficient. Poultry of the land-farmed animals is the only form of meat that comes close to fish. So fish in general have extremely low food conversions. Farmed fish are where food conversion starts to get really efficient. Farmed salmon are between about 1.2 and 1.5. Salmon food conversion levels have actually come down a lot in recent years. And tilapia? Their feed conversion is anywhere between 1 and 1.2. In other words, give them a kilogram of plants and you get back a kilogram of fish. Which sounds like a really good trade-off, because it is. Is it even possible to do any better than that? That sounds pretty perfect. Yes, that's about as ideal as you can get. Tilapia, farmed right, is pretty much the most efficient, most ecologically sustainable farmed animal protein going. And at least under ideal circumstances, it's incredibly cheap to raise. That sort of outsized potential really gets into people. My name's Mike Pichetti. I guess I'm a fish businessman, fish entrepreneur, fish farming entrepreneur, tilapia businessman. Mike Pichetti is a big part of the reason tilapia made it from Egypt onto your plate. It took them decades of trying and failing, too. I'm from Chicago suburbs, and um, I went to uh, Africa as a Peace Corps right after college. I went over to the Peace Corps in Ghana in 78, and they were just getting to work with fish farming at that time. The Peace Corps was one of the early tilapia promoters. They saw small-scale tilapia farming as a tool for economic development. It really caught my interest. So when I came back to the States, I wanted to do that. I thought fish farming would be an interesting thing to do, but I, I didn't know how to go about it. Back home, early 1980s, fish farming wasn't yet anywhere near as common as it is today. But Mike did find an early tilapia adopter, and he reached out. So I called up this fella called Mike Sipe, who was breeding tilapia at the time in Florida. Yes, there are two Mikes in this story. Mike Pichetti, the entrepreneur, and Mike Sipe, the fish breeder. Mike Sipe figured tilapia would stand a better commercial chance if they didn't look so tilapia-like. So he'd bred a line that were colored red instead of the usual dark gray. And he did it because he thought that it's prettier as a red snapper and it'll sell better. He even named his red-colored tilapia Cherry Snapper. Only problem, you're not allowed to name one type of fish after a totally different type of fish. The FDA stepped in. Eventually, that project failed. But for Mike Pichetti, it was all education. He was becoming an expert at farming tilapia, and the world wanted his expertise. He went on to set up farms in Mexico. Like 15 different 
breeding stations throughout Mexico. And India. We produced a boatload of tilapia, which was called, uh, I think they called it Golden Blessing, was the name of the fish. And this was in the early 80s. Those projects were always for the local fish markets, though, not for exports. A few years later, in Brazil, Mike saw a chance to finally help tilapia catch on around the U.S. We put millions and millions of tilapia all over these lakes. They built these dams and lakes, so we, we stuffed them with tilapia. And then we went back with trucks and ice, and we formed co-ops and fishermen, and we actually caught the tilapia wild, and we sent them up to the States uh, in containers to get into the market. That was my first shot uh, at the market in, in the frozen filet market. And it was about 1983 or four. Bit of a baseline here. In the 1980s, just as Mike's trying to sell that Brazilian tilapia in the United States, wild ocean fish, cod and halibut, even tinned bluefin tuna, is still cheap and at least seemingly plentiful. Outside conservation circles, most people haven't yet caught on that wild fish stocks are in decline. And if you could get the likes of fresh wild tuna and sockeye salmon for super cheap, why would you ever bother with this strange new fish from Africa? So we didn't really have a market advantage. Mike's other disadvantage was something that's plagued tilapia entrepreneurs from the beginning. And quite frankly, the fish that was wild tasted, didn't taste good. It has a kind of musty, I think they call it geomyosin flavor. That's the bacteria and the algae in highly eutrophic ponds or lakes that, that give it kind of a musty taste. Translation, Mike's Brazilian tilapia tasted just a soup zone too much, like pond scum. I'd go into a, a restaurant and the hmm. guys would chew it and right away I'm saying to myself, oh boy, oh boy. I go, how does that taste? It, it tastes just like a bluegill. You, you, you like that wild flavor? And the guy go, no. So that kind of ended that. Then in the early 1990s, Mike got a call from Indonesia, from a Swiss-run company that was growing its tilapia in these enormous clean water lakes. It caught Mike's attention because tilapia raised in clean, fresh water don't have the problem that plagued Mike's earlier tries. I realized that, and then I tasted the fish, I realized that, wow, this, this is the taste uh, and the scale to be able to, to do this. They don't taste muddy. So we put cages in these big lakes. These lakes were 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 acres apiece in the middle of Java, central Java. And they were very high-quality water. He and that company in Indonesia started a partnership called Regal Springs. We did Marketing 101. And started shipping container loads of frozen Indonesia tilapia fillets to the United States. I made a brochure and a video, and uh, we just wanted to tell our story, because I knew the story because I failed so many times at it, that this was a good story because this is the way tilapia should be grown. Regal Springs Tilapia, farmed using the highest standards in aquaculture technology, the healthy, safe, and environmentally friendly way to deliver tilapia to the dinner table. And sure enough, people would taste it and say, wow, this is good. Regal Springs tilapia are free of mercury and pollutants commonly found in wild fish. And it didn't hurt tilapia's fortunes that, well, you know how wild fish had always been cheap and seemingly plentiful? That was changing fast. 
1992, Canada's federal government announced a moratorium on fishing cod off the Atlantic coast. The Atlantic cod population was collapsing. Out on the Pacific, the wild salmon fishery was just beginning its long decline. And all around the world, people were realizing that maybe the planet didn't have a limitless supply of fish. Oh, and there was one other, perhaps more populous development in the early 1990s. This chain of inexpensive, fast-casual, family-friendly restaurants named Applebee's was just starting to take off. So just when we were coming on the scene, we could provide them a growing restaurant chain, like starting with 300 and eventually going to 1,500 restaurants, we could supply them with a five to seven ounce filet, white filet, at the same price for a year. That's unheard of in seafood. Still, it's difficult. So that's what a big restaurant chain needed. Applebee's also needed a super low price. Other animal proteins at the time, like chicken and pork, were constantly getting cheaper. So if it wanted to compete, Fish had to do the same. But to go along with that super low price, Applebee's also needed a fish that a lot of people would, well, if love isn't the right term exactly, Applebee's needed a fish that a lot of people would like. The beauty of tilapia is that for people who aren't used to eating fish, somebody like me from Chicago, where the stockyards are from, um, tilapia is just, it's not fishy especially if it's grown right, like most of it that's out there. It's not fishy at all, like mackerel or trout or, you know, even some ocean fish. It's got a very mild, almost no taste, uh, maybe a slightly sweet taste. So, you know, you don't really have to do that much to it. Uh, A little lemon sauce or or a little crab sauce. But the, the beauty of it is it filled up the plate. I mean, you have this plate and you have a five ounce filet that looks like you know, the side of a whale sitting on your plate. Uh, it, it, it just worked. The whole, all the senses were, were met. Applebee's became North America's first big purchaser of Mike Bacchetti's frozen tilapia fillets. You could have a meal for seven, eight bucks. That's, I mean, it's cheaper than cooking yourself. So that industry just exploded in the 90s. And we were right there with them. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Frozen tilapia's next big break came from what, just a few years earlier, would have been a highly unlikely source. It came from cod country, from Atlantic Canada, just when you spy one from a historic Captain fish company called Highliner Foods. Captain Highliner ought to know, when you do get your fork in, Highliner's the best fish you ever tasted. <laughs> it was a big, big, big fishing company whose industry was starting to fail because they just they were closing George's Bank at the time in the early 90s. George's Bank is this super important cod fishing ground. And these guys looked at tilapia, they looked at the texture, they looked at their, what they were selling their boats because they couldn't catch any more fish. 
So they uh, they joined in in the marketing of this thing. They those Canadian seafood companies, fishermen companies, became marketing and product developers. So Highliner partnered with Mike's company, Regal Springs, and together they started putting that Indonesian tilapia into frozen breaded fish products. The light, crispy taste of the captain's secret batter on Highliner fish and chips. And then Highliner got those breaded tilapia products, as well as just straight up frozen tilapia, onto the shelves of this growing retailer that, a little like Applebee's, was transforming North America's consumer landscape. Costco, the warehouse retail chain. We put a deal together and went into Costco, and it's still there. The rest is history. One other major market for tilapia hit its stride in the 1990s. We sought be the fishery at 91, 92, and um, at that time, we don't find that much tilapia. This is Andy Yip, the co-founder of a major seafood distribution company in Toronto called Beaver Fishery. Beaver Fishery supplies the live market around Ontario, the fish you see swimming in glass tanks, mostly at Asian supermarkets. That's what they are looking for. And our culture preparing the fish, they say nothing is fresher than live. So that's why they uh, really want to have a fish they can see at the tank, uh, which they are healthy before they buy the fish and have the store to uh, clean it up, to gut it before they bring it home to, to get it prepared. If that sounds like just a niche market, well, it isn't. It's massive. With its growing Chinese-Canadian population, Toronto's the most important live tilapia market in North America. By some estimates, it accounts for 30 to 40,000 pounds a week. Live markets are huge business in cities across the continent. So Andy first noticed live tilapia on a trip to New York City at a fishmonger's in Chinatown. The taste was good, the price was right. I started looking for farmers, suppliers of tilapia going during that time, right? So that's, as I can say, uh, live tilapia in Toronto, I can say is coming to the market around that uh, 92, 93. He started bringing them in, trucking them up from farms in the southern U.S. And then when Roger Bushy's farm, when Sand Plains, that big facility with the torrent of tilapia opened, and he started buying from there too because they are treating the fish more healthier. The water quality is good because they are coming in the indoor system mostly, right? Our people is really lucky to uh, enjoy the tilapia which grow in uh, North America. But the thing that's maybe the most striking about that live tilapia market is how different it is from the frozen market that Mike Piketty started. While live tilapia sell at retail for anywhere between around 4 and $7 a pound, frozen routinely goes for less than half that much. And when you buy a live tilapia, you know it was raised in North America. It met at least some basic health and environmental standards, which you can't say about tilapia from some other parts of the world. Here's Ann Kapuscinski. China became, you know, the super major producer of tilapia starting 15, 20 years ago. And they sort of flooded the global market with tilapia at very low prices. They're not necessarily raising all those fish in very scrupulous ways. 
unscrupulously is possibly a little kind. Some Chinese farms have fed their fish pig and poultry manure as a cost-saving measure and used banned antifungal chemicals and antibiotics, which it's important to note this isn't tilapia's fault. But depending which version of the fish you eat, where and how it was raised, you're either doing something really great for the planet, something that you can feel good about, or you're eating waterborne trash. And as for the promise of tilapia, it just isn't all that simple yet. Even here in North America, farm tilapia are still fed fish meal. Sure, they can survive just fine without it, but then the flesh they produce isn't anywhere near as healthy to eat. For every animal, including people, you are what you eat. Wild fish meal contains omega-3 fatty acids, and this is totally oversimplifying things, but essentially, those fatty acids are brain food. If you reduce the amount of omega-3 fatty acids in the diet for the tilapia, you'll have less in the tilapia fish flesh. Hmm. Without wild fish meal, tilapia is full of omega-6 fatty acids, which might actually be kind of bad for you. Four good reasons you should never eat tilapia again. Bacon is better for you than tilapia. So Anne's focus in the last few years has been finding a good replacement for that fish meal and fish oil. And it turns out the answer is microalgae, the plants that grow in water. If we can shift instead to using marine microalgae, we could have a double benefit. We can both maintain good omega-3 fatty acid levels and perhaps raise them. And the solution to producing those microalgae cheaply might lie, of all places, with the beer industry. And when we started talking to some breweries, we learned that wastewater treatment is actually a cost for them. Wastewater from brewing is a great medium for growing microalgae. So we see this as an opportunity to turn the waste into a beneficial input, essentially upcycling uh, of this wastewater. I see a perfect circle here where the, the, the wastewater from a brewery helps to grow microalgae, which in turn helps to grow fish, and then we drink beer as we eat the fish. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of perfect. Yes. There is one other hurdle for tilapia to pass, and that's the perception hurdle. Tilapia, at least here in North America, it started from the bottom. It's always been the fish you eat when you either can't afford or can't source the fish you actually want. Anyway, it started from the bottom, and now it's here. Tilapia even gets snuck into restaurant dishes and seafood displays disguised as other fish. If you can't tell tilapia from tuna or pickerel from sole, you just might be getting reeled in at your local fish market. Samples taken in several major Canadian cities showed more than 40% of fish didn't match what was written on the label. Taste is different, but they look very, very similar. If you have to sell $30 a pound, then you can, you know, you could sell tilapia at $10 a pound and just call it Red Snapper and nobody will know the difference. <laughs> Deliberate bait and switch. Tilapia, as great as its potential is, has a reputation as a replacement fish. As imitation cod, as I can't believe it's not snapper. And while you may see it in fast, casual places like Applebee's, the place you almost never see it is on fancy restaurant menus. I wanted to see how tasty tilapia can actually get. So I brought some to a really great fish chef I know. These are very good quality fish that you have gotten. Nick Biu, he's the chef and co-owner of Dilo Restaurant in Toronto. 
I brought him some fresh tilapia from the live tank at one of the big Asian markets. These are so fresh. That's what you get when you buy them out of a tank, isn't it? It is. I mean, you know, like you, you got to look at it as you're almost pulling it out of the sea, right? I brought him that live tank tilapia, and I've also brought him the lowest of the low, frozen tilapia from China. It costs $3.99 for a bag of six fillets, and Nick, I have to say, Nick is properly scandalized. Tell you, it's been years since I've been able to work with a product like this. <laughs> Nick grew up in a Chinese-Canadian family, and for Nick, as a kid, live tilapia was a special occasion fish. It was sort of like a special thing because, you know, like my parents don't buy, you know, fresh fish all the time, and it was always kind of cheap, right? It was fresh fish and it was flopping around. I get to see my parents, like, point at a fish and get taken out of the tank and bumped on the head with a hammer and, like, scaled and cleaned right there in front of me. That, as a kid, is kind of like, oh my god, this is so cool. And then, well, he got wise to high-end seafood. He worked in French restaurants. He discovered line-caught halibut and wild Pacific salmon, Dover sole and albacore tuna. As for tilapia... When I was growing up, I remember this fish being very muddy. I don't really buy tilapia, and I don't use tilapia. He hasn't cooked tilapia in years. I'm going to do two sort of separate things. One that uh, I would have traditionally had when I was a kid, uh, when my parents used to buy tilapia, with the fresh fish, Nick goes simple, or at least chef simple. He cuts deep diagonal slits all over the fish. So I'm going right down to the bone, right? This will allow us to kind of marinate the fish, you know, a couple seconds before, right? So it'll season the fish. And then he rubs it down with soy glaze. We're just sticking it in the, uh, in the slits of the fish. And then we're also going to put a whole bunch of it on top. And he throws that whole dressed tilapia into the steamer. So we're just going to throw that in there. And we're going to time it. We'll time it for nine minutes, check it, and then we'll see where it goes from there. As for the other fish, the fillets. Uh, your frozen tilapia from China is looking oh so delicious. <laughs> he doesn't really mean that. The frozen stuff, I'm going to do like a French application, brown the butter, a little bit of lemon, and some uh, truffle capers, which we have, and just keep it very simple. In any case, Nick is having a hard time with that frozen fish. Like, if you look at this flesh, like, I'm just kind of feeling it, right? But my finger actually just went right through it. Because it has no firmness to it. It's got no firmness. It's going to probably be a tad bit mushy. All right, so I'm just going to crush some garlic. I've got some herbs here, too. So what you want to do with a fish like this uh, that is so wet um, is you want to get some oil pretty hot, right? and uh, throw it in your pan. We're gonna throw some butter in there and that's gonna help it release off the pan, hopefully. But as he adds the butter and the herbs and starts spooning it all over that tilapia, basting it as it sears, the smell is pretty mesmerizing. You can hide anything with good technique of cooking. <laughs> he adds a squeeze of lemon, a couple more knobs of butter, a spoonful of capers. It's already kind of falling apart, right? Uh, the structural integrity of shitty fish. Then he slides the fillets onto a plate. Are you ready to eat these things? Uh, I'm so what ready like? to go, because this looks great. <laughs> Those cheap, frozen Chinese fillets, if you try not to think about how they might have been raised, they aren't half bad. So, let's, uh, let's get in there. They smell good. Yeah. Chinese tilapia fillets. 
Yep. I mean, see, like, look how that, look how that flesh kind of breaks. It's, it's almost like it's canned tuna. You know, all that said, it's not offensive in any way, is it? No, it's not offensive. I mean, it's kind of like the chicken of the sea, right? Um, you know, it's the most common thing in the sea, the most unoffensive fish that you can eat. And, you know, I think for the average household, if you don't know the difference, right, and you don't care about sustainability, and you don't care about the quality, all you care about is the price and, you know, the flavor of it, it's not a bad flavor. It doesn't taste like anything. It tastes like brown butter and capers. Really good brown butter and capers. <laughs> <laughs> As for the whole steamed fish, that's another story entirely. Okay, so we've got um, old school style. Uh, this is something like how my dad would do it from me growing up. Seems tilapia uh, with a soy glaze, some ginger, uh, green onion, and crispy garlic and uh, onion some sizzling hot uh, sesame oil to finish. The flavor is good. It's mild, for sure. This fish has more texture, more richness than it has actual taste. But it just kind of flakes away really nicely as you eat. Yet, even this fish, this tilapia that just a couple hours ago was swimming around that supermarket aquarium, it hasn't totally lived up to tilapia's potential. A few days earlier, when I was at Beaver Fishery, Andy Yip's place, Andy steamed a whole tilapia for me. And Andy's tilapia didn't have even a trace of muddiness. It was just clean tasting. Fish, without the fishy. The tilapia I've brought Nick must have come from a different farm, a different distributor. Just the slightest bit of muddiness, um, which is kind of strange from my experiences, right? Usually when I have uh, tilapia, I mean, it's mostly muddy. That glimmer of muddiness, it's really kind of apt in a lot of ways. The fish of the future still has some kinks that need working out. In any case, it isn't stopping either of us from diving in. It's delicious. It's just good. I mean, it's funny. This fish to me is texture and richness, and you're getting so much kind of brightness and deliciousness from the ginger, from mm -hmm. the soy glaze, from all that other stuff. It's like the fish is a vehicle for goodness. It is. It's, uh, I mean, it's a sponge. It's a, like it's a flavor sponge. As we're sitting at that table, eating that fish, I'm not going to pretend for you that it's the best tasting seafood species I've ever eaten, because it's not. I'm a wild salmon guy, a halibut guy. Give me line-caught cod from the coast of Newfoundland, and I'm in seafood heaven. But for fish that cost 5 or $6 a pound, instead of 15 or 20 or more, for something that you can eat pretty much every day, this tilapia is surprisingly tasty. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> you look very happy right now. This is The Fridge Light. The voices you heard today were Roger Bushy from Sand Plains Aquaculture, fish entrepreneur Mike Paketti, Ann Kapashinsky from Dartmouth College, Andy Yip from Beaver Fishery, and Nick Liu from Dilo Restaurant in Toronto. And this episode was produced by Zoe Tennant, Veronica Simmons, Michelle Macklem, Alison Broverman, and me, Chris Noddle-Smith. Additional music was by Paolo Pietropaolo. Our executive producer is Arif Norani. And this is the last episode of The Fridge Light season. Special thanks have to go out to the whole production team who, well, got the fridge light plugged in, who made that fridge light glow. Special thanks also to Paolo Pietropaolo and Lisa Godfrey, who helped develop the show from the start. 
If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, write us a review. For a suggested line, you could always try fish without the fishy. For more information on this episode, visit cbc.ca slash thefridgelight. And you can connect with us on Twitter and share photos with us on Instagram at FridgelightCBC. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.